0: Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today, February, is Black History Month, and we'll hear about black history in the Rocky Mountain region. One of the surprises
1: is to just find out, going back to the 1830s, just the black presence in this part of the
0: world. A Denae musician based in the Four Corners infuses electronic, traditional and ambient sounds to capture what the Southwest sounds like. i like create music just with instruments like
2: a bass or a guitar, found sounds and stuff like that.
0: And one of the largest gatherings of scientists and researchers took place in Colorado recently. You have some of
3: the preeminent research institutions all within a hundred mile radius of here.
0: From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. February is Black History Month, and the Museum of Boulder is celebrating with an ongoing exhibition proclaiming Colorado's black history. KGNU's Juanita Hurtado talked with author and researcher Adrian Miller, co-project director and curator of the exhibit.
1: One of the surprises is to just find out going back to the 1830s, just the black presence in this part of the world, Um, because black history in Colorado is rarely told. Um, so, you know, there's some stories that you hear. You hear about Clara Brown, who came here in 1859 as a formerly enslaved woman uh, and, and really made an impact. She she ran a lottery business, but she started buying mining claims and other stuff, became quite wealthy and became a philanthropist, um, was instrumental in two of the early churches here in Colorado. So those stories were interesting. But then just to hear about kind of the black experience in the latter part of the 19th century and to hear that it was mixed in the sense that it wasn't uniformly shut down that black people would have opportunity so um there were some instances where people tried to limit um black progress and opportunity but they failed and i'll give you one example in the 1860s there was a petition to exclude black children from denver's public schools the early public schools and so that was sent to the voters and it failed And so, you know, that's unusual because usually um, at that time in our nation's history, if there was any opportunity to limit black progress, it passed and it was overwhelmingly supported and it wasn't. But then in other parts of Colorado, the color line was drawn. So it's this it's this mixed experience. But I guess the one thing that surprised me. Is a question that still hasn't been answered, and that is. What was it about Colorado that drew so many African Americans here compared to neighboring states? Because even though they weren't exactly the same, um, you would think that there would have been opportunity in Wyoming and New Mexico, Utah, and Montana. Like similar opportunities presented themselves in terms of like agriculture, mining, setting up businesses, things like that. But there was something about Colorado and it may be just that for whatever reason Colorado became the population center and so that's what drew people but I'm still wondering I'm just still wondering that question was like, why did we get so many amazing black people that came to Colorado what kind of maybe as you said there might not be answers but what kind of surprises can people find or clues as to that is within this exhibition I think so one of the the first part of the exhibit is about the early arrivals so we talk about why people came to Well, not, yeah, we talk about the reasons why people came to Colorado. Some were enslaved. I don't think a lot of people know that there were enslaved people here. Even though Colorado never legally um, allowed slavery, it was kind of like a wink and a nod that if you had enslaved people, you know, nobody's going to free them. So we had enslaved people here more than I think people know. And I think some of the stories we highlight, people may not know. Like I'll give you one example Uh, Julia Greeley was a visually impaired person who uh, did a lot of charity work in Denver in the late 19th century. And she was so celebrated for her charity work that the Roman Catholic Church, Archdiocese of Denver, they're putting her through the process for canonization. So, yeah, so she's the first African-American woman and the first Coloradan that we know of to go through that. So, you know, it's just, just people like that are being celebrated. So we talk about that. Um, we talk about the early efforts to uh, have civil rights in Colorado. So one one thing that I don't think a lot of people know is that two things. In the late 1860s, when Colorado was being considered for state, 100 plus black men signed a petition saying, no, it, took, it sent it to Congress saying, we don't think Colorado should have statehood until black men get the right to vote. And Colorado statehood was just delayed it's unclear if that petition had any impact, but it was delayed. And when Colorado became a state in 1876, black men had the right to vote. Now, unfortunately, they weren't truly, truly progressive because they should have thrown black women in there. Black women didn't get the right to vote till 1893. But um, And then the other thing is the 1890s, there was a uh, legislator named Joseph Stewart. He was an immigrant from Barbados. He was a lawyer, but he was the only African-American in Colorado's state legislature. And in the 1890s, he got through a civil rights bill that legally, in terms of the framework, is the same as the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So we had that on the books here in Colorado. But unfortunately, that was not enforced. So even though the law existed, right, unless the police arrest people under that law and the courts prosecute, it's what we call a dead letter. So it just, you know, it's on the books, but really didn't have any force. So- Something like that. And then I I think the other thing that people may not know is that in Gilpin County in the 1920s, um, something called Lincoln Hills was created. And that was like the only black resort west of the Mississippi other than one that was in California. But that one in California closed down several years after it opened. So we have this black resort that was highly regarded and is in the mountains of Colorado. So things like that. I guess one of my wrapping up questions is, in the last couple of years, we have seen nationally a lot of backlash to having these conversations about history, these conversations about racism and racial theory, and sort of these whole ideas about what kind of discourse should surround these topics. What kind of conversations would you want this exhibition to prompt? Yeah, my hope is, is that first people will get a, an understanding of the Black experience here um, as an entry point, and that it will spur them to reach out Um in several ways one is to start learning more about these subjects so to connect with the student for africans the center for african studies there and see what courses are available um i hope they will reach out to people who are different than they are and just start get to know them and start talking about these things and then i hope that they will um spread the word about this exhibit because i just think the more people who know about this then we can start making progress on understanding each other and then hopefully with understanding each other we can build a just society where people feel respected they feel like they have opportunity they feel like they're they're heard and they they feel like they belong and i think that's what we many of us not everybody wants that but i think many of us strive to have a society like that and you know um the last thing i think that i want students to ponder is at the very end of the exhibit, we ask this question, what kind of ancestor are you going to be to future Black Coloradans?
0: That was KGNU's Juanita Hurtado speaking with Adrian Miller about the Museum of Boulder's exhibit, proclaiming Colorado's Black history. Kino Benali is a Dene musician based in the Four Corners region who infuses electronic, traditional and ambient sounds in his latest release, that aims to capture what the Southwest sounds like. KSJD's Lacey McKay brings us this audio postcard. My name
2: is Kino Benali, I am a Kino Benali, I am a teacher, I am I am a so there are moments in, like, my musical career that I've definitely gone towards, like, more of, like, an indie-type flavor of things. And I'll, like, create music just with instruments, like a bass or a guitar, found sounds and stuff like that. But And I think I used to draw before, and I was kind of, like, into the Nintendo 64. But once I f- found I could do music, I was like, oh, this is going to be... That basically turned into, like, instead of gaming or doing anything like that, I was, like, making music. Well, like, at the core of it, the question was, what does the Southwest sound like? And so I kind of thought about that and tried to get at what it sounded like growing up over here. And I know, like, the things that came into my head were the sound of the wind and then, like, the feeling of, like, dirt blowing in your face and stuff like that. So that's kind of where it started to grow from. So it's like has like some ambient influences inside of it. From those kind of ideas I started to realize that the bigger concept of it was like just my experience on the earth. And so it was definitely like, okay. And then that's where the name came from, Hassan which is like Earth Mother Earth, Earth Our Mother. And so that was kind of neat to like come at it with a question and then answer it and then realize that there's a bigger concept behind that. I was mainly like doing a lot of the recording over in Sweetwater, this place that's going towards Kienta, over in Arizona, where my dad's from. And it's kind of like a little bit in like the middle of like nowhere kind of like on a dirt road off of the highway for like 15 to 20 minutes you're just driving so it's pretty isolated and i recorded a lot of things out there like when it was raining or like because i like was chopping some wood too so i got those sounds like making the fire and then when it was springtime there's like a little wash right behind the house so That's where the water goes, and like there was all these birds and things going on, like having like singing. So during that time, I was like taking some Navajo language classes and some Navajo culture classes over at Diné College, and that kind of like fed into because I was like really interested in the words in Navajo and how they reflect the sounds. So it was kind of neat to like try and use a word, represent it sonically, and then also like kind of get into that mindset of whatever yeah, whatever it means for sure. My friend, um, Kevin Aspis did the cover. So he's like a practitioner of traditional in a wee and so i as i was formulating the music and it was starting to kind of get a more solid idea i sent him the music and told him about the concept that i was thinking and then he wove it using those ideas that i said and listening to the music too so that was a pretty awesome collaboration because like i got it and it was finished before the album was finished so i could I kind of like would look at it and kind of think, hmm, so it was created with the music and the idea, then it helped finish off the music as well. On the back of the record, there's this image of a drum, and that was made by a friend of mine, Camus Loke, and he's uh... Musician and artist and he performs a part of the band Black Belt Eagle Scout as their drummer But he makes drums so he made that drum and like Recorded some sounds and sent those to me and I use that as kind of almost like a color or like Like something to draw upon and also like trying to make myself get creative and see how many different ways I could make it like into different things and like layer it up and that was a pretty key collaboration and also like my sisters are on the, the album as well. And I have like a friend of mine two, a couple of friends, yeah, there's a uh, artist Olivia who plays the guitar on the title track, or the first track. I have another indigenous collaborator Renata Yazi and she's a pianist that one was pretty fun because I wrote that one just using MIDI so it was just patterns on the computer and then transferred it the MIDI into musical notation and then sent that to her and she kind of, like, helped edit it, and then she played it and did, like, three different takes. Then I put those takes back into the computer and kind of, like, manipulated all of them to come together. That one was pretty fun.
0: That was Kino Benali, a Dene musician based in the Four Corners region. Thanks to Lacey McKay at KSJD for that story. You're listening to the regional roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of non profit radio stations throughout the Rocky Mountain region, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran. One of the largest gatherings of scientists and researchers recently took place in Colorado. The American Association for the Advancement of Science hosted its annual meeting in Denver, February 15th through 17th. Andrew Black, Chief Public Affairs Officer at the AAAS, says Denver was selected because it's a city that is deeply rooted in science and technology.
3: You have some of the preeminent research institutions all within a hundred mile radius of here. And it has been um, a wonderful partnership with uh, CU Boulder, also at the University of Denver, especially in the past decade or two. The increase in S&T activity here has just been really inspiring. It is a community that embraces innovation, and it is really at the forefront
0: of some of the most important advances. I asked Andrew Black about the history of the organization.
3: AAAS, in in short, is an organization that exists with a mission to advance science, engineering and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all, and and our short tagline that we say for that is advancing science and serving society. Um, we are an individual membership organization of scientists and engineers. That uh, actually just last year we celebrated our 175th birthday. Um, so we were founded in Philadelphia in 1848 as a group of naturalists. Uh, you know now we would kind of call them geologists and meteorologists uh, and botanists who gathered recognizing that there was a need for the U.S. scientific enterprise to be talking not just within scientific disciplines, but across scientific disciplines to really uh, come together and convene around how science can advance society more broadly. So the the most notable thing that we do in the scientific community is publish Science Magazine, um, which is one of the premier journals, uh, peer-reviewed publications in the world, Um, and a a family of other uh, six other scientific peer-reviewed publications. Um, But we also, uh, through a number of programmatic efforts and advocacy work both in Washington, DC and around the country uh, and around the world really, um, work to make connections and build trust between scientists, between the scientific enterprise and communities. And that could mean everything from working with um, scientists in policymaking capacities, um, in the media, we we have immersive fellowships that place scientists and engineers in both of those settings in, in federal government and all three branches of the federal government. Also in newsrooms, our, our mass media fellowship is nearly 50 years old and places scientists in newsrooms across the country. Um, so it's really about building those trusted relationships so that we can all, as an ecosystem, work together to advance science for the good of society.
0: You mentioned a word that's really important, trust. And I'm sure the founders of AAAS more than a century ago could not have envisioned that that would be such an issue more than a century later, where we've seen a real hollowing out when it comes to trust, a proliferation of misinformation, particularly when it comes to science, whether it's climate deniers or what we've seen more recently when it comes to public health and what happened with COVID and vaccines. Talk a little bit about what that means now to be a scientist in the current climate, for want of a better word. Yeah. And, you know, I I think our
3: our CEO, Soudet Parikh, says this, and it I think captures it really well, which is trust uh, trust is gained in teaspoons and lost in buckets. And as a scientific community, uh, we really need to acknowledge that there has been a lot over many decades and and centuries, really, um, that has uh, led the publics to have a lack of trust in the scientific enterprise. We're all human, right? No matter what industry you're in, um, we make mistakes and we do things and and we learn from them. But the kind of proliferation of a really ivory tower mentality over the past few decades that um, somehow scientists and engineers are you know, handing down information that just needs to be automatically trusted by the public because It comes from scientists and engineers and from academia does not work anymore. And so a focal point of a lot of AAAS's work is, like I said, um, building those relationships of trust between scientific communities and societal influencers. So a lot of the work we do in, in kind of immersive fellowships and other opportunities is to put scientists embedded in these other environments. So I talked a little bit about embedding scientists with policymakers in in Washington and with mass media um, outlets, but we also do that with religious communities and with judges and with other journalists. So these are communities that you typically think of not necessarily as as having direct relationships with, with science, but science and technology are everywhere in this world. And I think anyone would acknowledge that the solving problems like climate change, like the next pandemic rely on a robust and inclusive scientific ecosystem. But scientists also have to work at being trusted in their communities. And so that is not something that just happens automatically. And so what we're trying to do as an organization is connect those dots and give scientists the opportunities to to be part of those broader communities so that that trust is built up in teaspoonfuls as opposed to just generally assumed.
0: To that end, I think there's probably a broad lack of understanding of where science is actually happening i mean is when i talk about these broad research projects is it at universities is it government labs is it private industry is it all of the above so when you talk about having these relationships across scientific disciplines i mean where is the science actually happening
3: it's everywhere um, it's everywhere. I mean, if you look at a US specific context, over 70% of scientists and engineers are working in industry. Now, our friends and colleagues in academia often forget that that is the case. And so I think when people think of scientists in white lab coats, they think of them as professors at universities and in these kind of storied picturesque campuses. But the reality is um, that is a that is a minority of the scientific enterprise. Um, certainly the academic uh, the academic ecosystem is 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 required to train and educate the the next generation of scientists, but the vast majority of these folks end up working in a non-academic setting. Um, you know, so whether that is uh, in a research-based setting or whether they are uh, technologists or technicians of, of of certain kinds, you know, a lot of the work we've been doing. Um, through a, an initiative is, is to kind of redefine what the definition of a STEM professional is in this country. And there are millions of people, some of them may have undergraduate four-year degrees in, in a STEM field. Some of them may even have a two-year degree in a STEM field. Some of them may have completed a technical training program, right? But there are all, all of these folks fall in under the umbrella of, of being a STEM professional in some way, shape, or form. It is not just the folks that we are churning out of PhD programs at the Harvard's, MIT's, Boulders, and Stanford's of, of, of the world. So really um, trying to build a community around that idea of redefining the STEM professional so that everyone understands the extent to which science and engineering and technology are so important in our society, not only for addressing the challenges of today, but being prepared to address the challenges that we haven't even thought of
0: yet. Around working in community, how collaborative would you say science is right now? Because I think there was a lot of uh, discussion around the development of the vaccine for COVID that we saw scientists all around the world really working together in a way that we're not seeing that level of collaboration Certainly around political discourse right now or, or other areas. And so that was actually something that was a kind of a good news story or something positive that seemed to be emerging the collaborative nature of some of this scientific work.
3: You know, we, we put a lot of time and energy into work, not only promoting international scientific collaboration, but also a field that we, uh, along with the Royal Society in the UK, kind of really brought to the fore about 15 years ago called Science Diplomacy. And this is the idea that even when official diplomatic relations between nation states are tense or even completely severed uh, in some way or another, the peer-to-peer relationships between scientists are incredibly important. So a really tangible example of our work in this area is a collaboration with the Academy of Sciences in Cuba. right? And you think, of course, you know, diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba have been highly charged and complicated and complex over many decades. But the mosquitoes that are flying around Havana are the same mosquitoes that are flying around Miami. The waters that touch the northern shores of Cuba are the same waters that are touching the the south coast of Florida. We need scientists on both sides of that collaborating with one another to talk about challenges like the warming oceans, like you know, uh, the spread of malaria and other and other things like that. What we have found is that even when these diplomatic relations are tense or frayed, peer-to-peer relationships with scientists uh, on both sides can be really effective and powerful foundations on which diplomatic relationships can be rebuilt. We're not naive enough to think that science diplomacy is going to solve hot conflict, but in, in areas where there is there is tension between countries and the need for continuing scientific collaboration on a peer-to-peer level is ongoing, we look for ways to support that. And so you know, we've done that in Cuba. We've done that in North Korea. Increasingly questions around scientific collaboration with China and and issues of research security are have been in the news quite a bit, um, especially as the US, as the government has had several initiatives to combat that. Um, and there's, of course, a balance between protecting our intellectual property and engaging in important scientific collaboration. One message that AAAS would say is, you know, we, we want to find a cure for Alzheimer's or for cancer or for insert things here. Do we care whether as human beings, whether that happens in the U.S. or the U.K. or China or Japan? No, we all will get to take advantage of those scientific advancements. We're an American organization. We want the best for the American scientific enterprise. And from a, from a vantage point of economic growth and opportunity, of course we want that cure to be found in a US lab. But at the end of the day, that is not going to happen without robust international scientific cooperation with the best and brightest minds from all over the world and all over the US. That diversity of thought and experience is what propels good science forward.
0: Andrew Black, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They hosted their annual meeting in Denver, February 15th through 17th. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Juanita Hurtado of KGNU and Lacey McKay of KSJD for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.